why is liturgy good for us? How can we make sure that our worship practices point to Jesus, not the person in the pulpit or at the table? How does pouring ourselves out give us a framework for the life of faith? And what's it mean to start and end the day open to God? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, and in today's show, I'll be talking to the Reverend Dr. Glenn Packiam. Glenn is Associate Senior Pastor at New Life Church in Colorado Springs, United States, and is lead pastor for their downtown congregation. And the question we'll be exploring today is, what is our theology of the Lord's Table? And how does it connect with everyday life? Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Glenn Packiam, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you so much, Philip. I'm a frequent listener to the show, so happy to be on. What a treat. Thank you, and welcome to Durham, where you've been doing some teaching on our MA program in terms of contemporary worship. Yes, it's always special to be here at Durham, and what a, what a wonderful place, and what a joy to teach. Glenn, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're ministering at the moment, what the journey to that role has taken, and, and what your role now involves. I serve at New Life Church, which is a non-denominational, evangelical, uh, charismatic church in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I serve as associate senior pastor, which I think just means I've been there long enough that they've had to keep inventing titles for it. I began in the um, worship ministry. I was one of the worship leaders, and then I would also work with the college and student ministry. And then about 11 or 12 years ago, I began to transition and doing less and less music and began preaching and teaching at a Sunday evening service. And then over time, we began to experiment with a model of doing church that we call multi-congregational, which is different than multi-site. It's actually, if a person's familiar with Anglican sort of, uh, you know, the parish system, it's a bit more like that, where we have congregations in different parts of the city, but they all share our resources together. There's a centralized administration system. So I lead one of those congregations, New Life Downtown, and I help our senior pastor provide leadership to the staff and some of the other pastors of the other congregations. And alongside that, you did doctoral uh, research here at Durham. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, that was a wonderful experience because Durham's such a unique place. You have the academic rigor of doctoral research here, but yet it's designed for pastors. So you have the kind of thick analysis of a practice, and then you're doing good theological reflection on it. So it's actually stuff that you can apply to ministry life. So I did my work on how hope is encoded and experienced in contemporary worship songs and services. And it was a nice blend of eschatology and ritual studies and all of that. Wow. And it was so fun. And I, and I did it part-time over the course of, you know, four or five years or so, made visits out here. And, and tell us about where you were brought up and about that journey of faith. I grew up in Malaysia. My mom was originally from Singapore, my dad from Malaysia. They met at the University of Singapore. My mom was an Anglican, raised that way. My dad was a Hindu. He converted in order to marry my mom, which we don't recommend dating as an evangelistic strategy, but it worked in their case. And so by the time my sister and I came along, we were attending an Anglican church in Malaysia. Shortly after that, we began to switch to a different kind of stream, a more independent church. And then we moved to America. When I was 10 years old, my parents went to a Bible college in Portland, Oregon. So we lived there for three years. I was ages 10 through 13. Moved back to Malaysia. I finished out my high school years and then came back to the States to go to university. And pretty much, you know, I became a citizen 10, 12 years ago, but uh, have lived in America now continuously since 1996. And you've um, written recently in a book called Blessed, Broken, 
and given about the place of the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, Eucharist, whatever we call it, in the life of the local church. That's interesting in the sense that churches from an evangelical tradition don't always put an emphasis on weekly communion, and yet you've written about that. Tell me where that interest came from. Where did that spring up from? Well, I mentioned that I've been at New Life for 20 years, and some time ago, so this is 2006, the founding senior pastor at New Life Church had a very public moral failure and left the church, was removed, and a new senior pastor came in the following year. His name's Brady Boyd, and he's been an amazing blessing to the church, a brilliant leader, a generous man in terms of the way he's allowed a whole cadre of leaders to rise up around him. But very early on into his time at New Life, we realized that actually something about our practices needed to change. In non-denominational churches, every pastor would say, well, it's it's all about Jesus, it's not about me. And yet, there are practices that we do every Sunday without realizing how they're actually pointing back at us, whether it is our faces on a video screen or the lights on us, and, and unintentional, but there are unintended consequences to the practices we participate in. And so, he and I and others began to talk about ways that we could change our weekly worship practices to make it more obviously rooted, and not just in a historic faith, but in a more Christ-centered way. So that's when I began shifting and doing less music, and I started to lead a Sunday evening service. And he said, why don't you use this as a bit of a laboratory space, a whiteboard environment to try out some new things? So we did. We started doing weekly communion on the Sunday evening service. We began reciting the Nicene Creed together. We began to pray Psalm 51 as a prayer confession, which I found, you know, evangelicals that are suspicious of written or recited prayers are not that suspicious of reciting the Bible. So using Psalm 51 was a sneaky way into it. But it didn't take long before he said, let's do this on Sunday mornings as well. And then it began to be a culture-shifting kind of moment for our church, a practice that began to reorient everything about our, our worship services. And in the book, you write about the way in which that practice that became a weekly practice within the life of the church, you write about the way that's not just simply a practice, but what you might call a paradigm, a kind of model, a pattern for seeing our life in Christ. Either there's something going on in what's going on at the table in the the blessing, the breaking and the giving that is somehow normative or exemplary for the life of the Christian. Can you talk us through that? Take us through the general idea, first of all, and then perhaps walk us through those three yeah. aspects to it. Well, the general idea first, our worship practices are formational. So coming to the Lord's table, let me just say one more thing about this. In our context, you know, the worship band may have an off day and then someone will say, oh, that ruined my quote unquote experience today. Or the preacher Lord forbid, will have an off day and really make a mess of the sermon. It's been known. And it, it has happened, you know. But when you come to the Lord's table, I think the beauty of it is we, we sort of step out of the way, kind of like John the Baptist, and we say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we realize there's a power in having a practice, a moment in the service that everything begins to build toward. So now the way we talk about it at New Life is we preach toward the table. Uh, we let the table be the high point of our worship service. So every sermon itself has to end with calling us to repent, to confess, and to receive God's grace again in a fresh way, rather than kind of an epic, you know, pump you up, you can go out and do better, cheer you on sort of moment. So it's a formative practice, but yes, it became a foundational paradigm. It began to be a way of understanding our own life in Christ and the church's mission in the world. So specifically the bread. The bread, Jesus says, this is my body given for you. And in a very real way, the church is also called the body of Christ. So there's a little bit of an analog there to be able to see ourselves as the bread that is blessed, broken, and given both personally and corporately. So let's think a little bit about those three dynamics, Glenn. Blessed, broken, 
given, we somehow find an expression of our life in what's happening to the bread. What does it mean to be blessed, broken, given? Talk us through that. The word blessed is a, a one that's used in all kinds of popular contexts. You can you can search for the hashtag blessed on social media and you'll find anything from having the perfect latte made for you to having the perfect dream vacation at the beach or whatever. And hashtag blessed usually is associated with things working out just the way you want it. But of course, this isn't what the scripture talks about when it talks about blessedness. And so if you go back to Genesis, when God creates the world and he looks at it, Genesis 1, and God blessed everything that he had made and he called it good. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that word eulageo for blessed is one of the words that the gospel writers use when they talk about Jesus taking bread. So there is a sense in which to be blessed is to be returned to our creational design, to be brought back to this place of beauty and goodness, something about our identity being restored. This is why I think Paul says in Ephesians 1 that Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing and that he had this in mind for us before the beginning of the world. So there's the link between Ephesians 1 and Genesis 1 that in Christ we actually get to be taken back to the beginning. And I think pastorally, there are so many people who they believe that God's first word about them is you're a lousy sinner. And they sort of imagine that the Christian life begins with all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is certainly true, but it's just not the beginning of the story, that actually God's first word about you is that you are blessed, that he made you in his image, that he delights in you, that he calls you good and beautiful. And in Christ, this is exactly what we have restored to us. So if that's true, that recognizing our blessedness is recognizing the gift of our life as a gift of God and its beauty and returning that praise to God. What does it mean, therefore, to be broken? Is that where the lousy sin of it comes in, or is it something else going on? No, that's very good. Our brokenness, you know, even just in vernacular, we use it in at least a few ways. I name three of them in the book. One way that we use the word broken is to refer to our frailty, the sense of coming up short, those moments where we feel overwhelmed or where we just can't seem to manage. But there's also a kind of brokenness that has to do with our failure, where we actually sin, we actually do fall short. And actually, there's some interesting sociological work on fracture in human relationships. That's the result of a break of trust or a breach of solidarity. And so even from a human perspective, even without being theological about it, when I let you down, when I've sinned against you, to use a Christian way, what I've done is there's been a break in our solidarity. There's been a break in our relationship. So in a very real sense, sin is a break between us and God or a break between us and our neighbor. It's why the prayer confession teaches us to pray. We have not loved you, Lord, with our whole hearts, and we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. There's a break in in those places. But the third kind of sense of brokenness is the brokenness that comes to us because of the fallenness of the world. This is maybe when the brokenness of the world breaks our hearts, if you will. And so this is not about sin, but about suffering and about pain. And so there is an experience of brokenness that we have apart from Christ. But I think there's something that happens when we place that brokenness in his hands, almost as seeing it as Lord in your hands, we become bread that is broken. And then all of a sudden there's kind of a 
a redemptive movement that happens with our brokenness. One, I think our brokenness gets filled up with the grace of God in this beautiful way. And perhaps the most stunning picture I've heard of this is of a Japanese art of pottery called the kintsugi, which literally means golden seams, golden joinery. And what would happen, I think, in the 15th century is these beautiful pieces of pottery would break and they would repair it with a liquid resin that looked like gold. And it became so beautiful and actually so valuable that art traders would deliberately break bowls just so they could be repaired. And I thought, let's see, something that became more beautiful for having been broken and restored than it would have been without that. That sounds like the power of redemption. That sounds like Augustine saying, oh, fortunate fall that gained for us so great a redeemer. How marvelous is this grace that would take even our flaws. So our brokenness in Christ's hands finds a kind of healing and and wholeness, but it also finds a redemptive purpose. So it's very difficult to talk about blessing and brokenness without this third movement of givenness, because part of what Jesus does with our brokenness is he gives us out. After all, bread that is not broken cannot be shared. We'll come on to givenness in a moment, Glenn, but is there something you're saying more than that brokenness is about identifying with Christ's brokenness, Christ's taking on the brokenness of this world. You're saying actually, yes, it's really important that Christ's brokenness was not the end and that therefore our brokenness is not the end. There's something valuable about identifying it and the fact that we are not experiencing brokenness for the first time, but rather that's experienced within the Godhead. But also that's not the end of the journey. That's exactly right. Without Christ, our brokenness would definitely be the end of the journey. We'd be stuck in this place. But when you replace our brokenness in his hands, because he himself was broken, because his life was given out for us, because he took that weight upon himself, then our brokenness becomes no longer the end. In in fact, his grace comes rushing in through our brokenness. In a very real way, it frees us up to confess our frailty. So as Christians in the church, we ought to be a community that is more than willing to confess our frailty, to be able to say, I need help. I can't do this on my own. Uh, We ought to be the first to confess our sins. We ought to be a community that helps one another confess not only our frailty, but also our failure, and even to confess the ways in which suffering and the brokenness of the world is breaking our hearts. Take us to that third point, the givenness. How does that take that journey and take it to another dimension? So again, everything that we're saying here about ourselves, we say first about Jesus, and he said he's the bread that came down from heaven given for the life of the world. He said, no one takes my life, but I lay it down. And so there is a sense about seeing yourself as being given that actually gives purpose to every moment of the day. Uh, Very often, one of the main contentions or objections that people have to their life mattering is they say, well, it's just too ordinary, or it's just too messy, or how could God use me? But actually, this is what God does, is he meets us in the mundane and the messy and somehow sends us out on mission in the midst of it, in every moment. So, it's like you imagine a bucket that has a drip that is just sort of just being drained, something is being taken from it, versus a bucket that is being poured out, being spent. Paul said, I'm being spent, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, right? To see your life as being given, you may not actually change anything on your diary, on your calendar, it may just be that you're changing your perspective. And so you say, Lord, as I go to work today, as I look after the children today, as I sit at my desk today, spend me, pour me out, give me for the life of the world so that we don't see ourselves as going through the day and thinking, gosh, I'm just being drained by everyone around me. No, I see it as I'm a missionary in every moment and the Lord is taking the mundane and the messy parts of my life and he's making me part of his mission in the world. And so, Lord, let every conversation today be a means of grace arriving to someone else. 
Does that speak into a culture where Christians live, particularly in the West, where we might think of faith as something which is designed where God gives us things that we need? And this is turning giving in a very different direction. So it's effectively saying, Lord, it's not about giving me X, Y, Z today, but Lord, what can I give for you because I follow a Lord who gave? Yes, and to understand that everything we've received from the Lord is meant to flow back out to others, so that we are not only the unlikely ones to which the kingdom has come, but we are the unlikely ones through which the kingdom will arrive to others, so that when people know us or know our churches, they can say, this church is good news for its community. And we discover that at New Life. So I've told you kind of the bad parts of our story, but here we are some 14 years later, and our Pastor Brady has led our church to think about the poor and the marginalized in our own community. So about 10 years ago, we began to start a women's health clinic in our city called the Dream Center's Medical Clinic. And then we started a an apartment complex for single moms and their kids fleeing situations of domestic abuse and domestic violence where they couldn't go get help from some of the other agencies without risking losing their children. So here again, we were a church that could have wallowed in our own pain and said, Lord, just sustain us. Just help us make it through another day. And instead, thank God for for Pastor Brady's heart and vision, but to help us kind of say, no, you know what, Lord, even in our brokenness, help us now to have a kind of solidarity with others who have experienced pain and hardship and actually turn our brokenness then into a place of givenness pour these things out through us let it flow through us to others and that idea of the life that flows from the blessing through the brokenness to the giving is a very kind of vibrant understanding of life and of faith very attractive and as you say one that builds the kingdom rather than one that leads to potentially disappointment disillusion because i haven't got what i thought i wanted to get out of faith exactly and it breaks us out of seeing grace as this sort of heavenly transaction i mean i think one of your great episodes on this podcast was with professor john barclay you know up the road here who talked about grace not only generating a kind of reciprocity between us and god but actually provoking a kind of generosity that spills outward the community of grace i think he called it that's right yes and one of the key verses for our team is we began to think about our own community was the verse in Proverbs that says, if you give to the poor, you lend to the Lord. Well, what a strange phrase. How do you lend to the Lord? But again, the Old Testament says, you don't pay God back. You let it flow out through you. So in your giving outwards, you are actually allowing grace to do what grace was designed to do. In your work, Glenn, you you have this really kind of interesting phrase that I think sums up a lot of what you've been talking. It's called sacramental imagination, which are two words I kind of think I know what they mean, but I'm not quite sure what they mean together. Tell me what you mean by them and why you think that's actually really powerful in the life of faith. It's a good thing to qualify, isn't it? Because people mean all kinds of different things by it. You know, sometimes we have a narrow view of sacraments. Sacraments are only, you know, the Lord's table, baptism, and so on. And so it could lead us mistakenly to sort of divide the world into sacred and secular. So when I'm on the bus, when I'm doing my job, well, that's just my normal stuff. But then there are these, you know, holy moments. Now, I do believe there are particular places and particular moments in which God reveals himself to us. And and that's one of the reasons why we preach the word and why we administer the sacraments. However, I think the sacraments are not meant to be accepted exceptional, rather they are meant to provoke a kind of imagination in us to see the world differently. This is sort of the Isaiah 6 idea where the glory of the Lord fills the temple and the angels say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So you could have the holiness of God and then say, well, you know, that'll never touch down here. Uh, When in fact the angels say, no, God's desire is for his glory to fill the earth. Or it reminds me in Genesis when Jacob wakes up from his stairway to heaven dream and says, surely the Lord Lord was in this place, though I did not know it. 
And I think that's the idea of sacramental imagination, is to be able to say, what if the Lord was at the kitchen sink with me? What if the Lord was by the bedside of the loved one that I'm caring for, even though I didn't know it? So it teaches us to imagine things as God being present in his world. Alexander Schmemann, the Orthodox theologian, talks about sacraments in this way. He says, when you bless a thing, you are returning it to its original purpose and identity. So he says, you know, something a little bit provocative, a what if we're not changing the nature of bread, but we're actually revealing what God made all of creation to be. A creation was made to be a container for the glory of God. So the sacraments are meant to help us see creation sacramentally. So tell me how that connects with this paradigm of blessed, broken, given. How does understanding the life of faith as being one that flows towards giving help us see the mundane and the messy in new ways through a kind of an openness to God's activity in the surprising places? My hope is that what will result is that people will come to see that every moment of their life matters and that Christ is near to them, Christ is with them by the Holy Spirit, and that we can offer to God every part of our lives as, you know, Paul says in Romans 12, as our spiritual act of worship. We can offer him our bodies, we can offer him our moments. So that, you know, the subtitle of the book is How Your Story Becomes Sacred in the Hands of Jesus. And I guess what it's challenging is the the assumption that there are parts of my life that matter to God and other parts that don't. Or maybe it would matter if I was doing something special or something, if I was going overseas on a missions trip or something. As opposed to saying, I am made in the image of God and my life is Christ. My life is hidden with Christ in God. And so a way of beginning to see our ordinary moments differently, even the messy parts of our life that we'd rather not admit. So my pastoral hope is that this kind of worldview would actually awaken people to how good the good news really is, that Jesus wants all of us. Jesus will take every moment of our lives and redeem it for his glory, for our good and for the life of the world. So give me a few examples about how people might, listening to this podcast, be open to seeing God at work in the everyday, God at work in the moment. I think it begins with oftentimes beginning how you begin your day. And maybe you begin your day and you say, come Holy Spirit, go with me now as I get on the bus, as I walk to work, as I sit with the children at home, or if I do this or that. And I've actually had a great number of conversations with people in in various stations of life, busy sort of corporate settings, the domestic life, saying, boy, this really changed my perspective on how I began to see my day. And so I I think it, it could begin with a simple prayer like that. We pray, come Holy Spirit, over the bread and the wine right at the Eucharist. So what if we prayed it over our own lives every day, every morning and said, come Holy Spirit, fill me again, renew your work in me again, send me out into the world today, send me to these people today, send me over each appointment that I have today. That would be a marvelous way to live, wouldn't it? When we say morning prayer here at Cranmer Hall, and and I'm leading, I often talk about, just before we have the final sending out, I often say, Lord, we just hold up jewel that lies before us today. Those things that we have planned, those tasks that we have to undertake, the people we will meet, that which comes to us unbidden, but by as a gift of your spirit. And may you be at work in it. And there's something, as I find myself saying it, and disciplined myself saying it, saying, Lord, there's stuff here today that is going to be a gift of you. Please open me up to it, because otherwise I won't see it. That's a kind of, come Holy Spirit. That's so beautiful. I mean, I, I can't remember who it was that pointed this out, maybe several people, but some of Jesus' most dramatic moments in the Gospels came as interruptions, didn't they? They were unscheduled sort of moments, if we could see it that way. And then maybe a, to put a bookend on it, a closing practice at the end of the day can be a very simple version of the prayer of examine. You know, the, the Ignatian prayer where you sort of say, where did I feel, where did I meet God's grace today? Where did I fail to give and receive love today? You kind of review the day. The Ignatian practice has the consolations and desolations idea, the consolations being where did I participate in in the flow of God's grace, desolations would be where did it leave me in not a good way. 
And I I find that to be comforting too, because this is not a self-help, we can get better, there's no room for failure, you know, hustle. It frees you up to say, Lord, we're not going to get it right. And at the end of today, I might have to come back and confess, ah, Lord, I really missed some moments there today. But to know that his mercies are new every morning, to know that every day we get resent into it. So to start with the come Holy Spirit and to end with reviewing the day with the Lord, I think is a beautiful way to remember, maybe even as the old books, Brother Lawrence, said, you know, a way of practicing his presence with us through the everyday. And then all of a sudden we realize each moment of our story might just be more sacred than we might have imagined. Tell me how this journey that you've gone on in terms of framing this as a church, as a pastor, as a writer, tell me how this has touched your own life of faith, your own walk with the Lord and your own openness to his presence. It's integrated for me personally what we say and do in corporate worship and then how we live personally. So when you come to the table and you hear those words at communion time, you know, Jesus took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it, you realize, oh yeah, and that's what he's doing with me every day. So there's a kind of integration now between worship in the church and our quote-unquote life of worship out in the world. But pastorally, it's actually been a way that we frame for our church understanding our own life in the world. So when this is how we say it. We say, when you gather together on Sundays to worship, it's like us rehearsing our blessedness at the Lord's table. You know, when this is the high point, the center point of our worship. We're rehearsing our blessedness at the Lord's table. And then when we gather in one another's homes, which all of our small groups at our church are based on food, they're meal groups. We say when we gather at one another's tables, we're kind of embracing each other in our brokenness as we gather around each other's tables. There's a vulnerability that happens, a breaking open of our lives as we break bread. And when we serve, either in the church or in the city or in the world, and there's plenty of partnerships and opportunities for that, what we are doing is we are being given for the life of the world. And in a way, it's like preparing a table for others. So the table, you know, the Lord's table, our table, preparing a table, blessed, broken, given. It becomes these movements as a way of understanding our own identity as a church. And I found that to be not just a clever sort of slogan for church, but actually a deeply meaningful way of thinking about our our life together as the people of God that, again, connects with what we do on Sundays and on into the rest of our week. Glenn, you've given us a great imaginative perspective on what it means to be blessed, broken, and given in the service of God. Thank you very much for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you, Philip. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St. John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.